Welcome to episode four of the five-part Jim Thomas series. In episode three, Jim talked about his experience being shot down, and in this episode, he discusses his transition to the Cobra and his capabilities as well as the use of B-52s. So, so life's about to get a little better. Uh, let's go ahead and continue on. He's going to talk about um, the Cobras and their loadout and all kinds of real cool stuff that we think you guys will enjoy. So when you transitioned to uh, Cobras, mm-hmm. you had a guy in the front seat. Well, I, I went to the front seat first. Okay, and then you worked your way up to them. I worked my way up to the aircraft commander in the back seat. Because you flew front seat, again, for two, three, two and a half months. Okay. Watched how you fly the mission. Because it was a complicated mission. Because mm-hmm. we had three radios. You had an FM to talk to the guys on the ground. You had a uh, UHF to talk to the scout. And you had a VHF to talk to the Air Force facts. Mm-hmm. And the FM, you also called artillery. So you had to be, you could, a lot of times you were functioning with all three of those radios at the same time. You'd be talking to the ground, you'd be talking to artillery to bring in fire, and you always had your scout uh, that you listened to. That was your primary concern, was the scout. Uh, that's the backseat of a Cobra. That's what the sight looked like. See, there's a little, there's a little plexiglass thing right here, yeah. and the sight's superimposed on it. So that's supposedly where you pointed that, where you put that on the ground. That's where the rockets were supposed to go. Was it pretty close? Or? It depended. It depended because because <laughs> the uh, pods had to be sighted to that uh, sight in the, in the in the aircraft. They had they had to be bore sighted. So they had techniques of doing that. Some were good, some were bad. Gotcha. A lot of times we'd shoot a rocket, see where it went, and just adjust. You know, if you were low, you'd just bring, bring the nose up a little bit and shoot a couple more rockets. Because you could shoot multiple rockets at a dive. So you could you could shoot individual rockets yeah. or, like, salvos? When we pulled, yeah. yeah. When you pulled the trigger, you usually got one from each side. Huh. Uh, if you held the trigger, you would just go shoot the whole load. And you could shoot the whole load in 10 seconds. How accurate were those rockets? You got pretty good with them. Yeah, it was not a point weapon, you know. There were times when the Viet Cong would have a 51 caliber pit. They would dig a pit, mount a 51 caliber in the pit, and they'd be up to their shoulders in in the dugout. So it would be about, probably as big around as this table. And they shoot at us. And we, there was one time when we had about five or six rovers flying on the wagon wheel, taking turns, shooting at this 51 cal to try to hit it. And as, as the cobra would roll out, the 51 cal would open up and nobody could get a rocket in the pit. Yeah. And it was an area of fire weapon. Yeah, yeah it, there's some, a little bit of courage going on that 51 cal gunner too, to, yeah. to, to fire after that. I think I would just no lay choice. low and just let the helicopters go away. It's, that's a half a load that we normally carried in the, in the main pods. On the outboard pods, we usually carried, uh, well, those were 17-pound rockets, similar to a 155 October shell. The outboards, we a lot of times we would carry flechettes, which we'd fire at 1,500 feet, and it would like a, fire like a shotgun and fire all the flechettes, a great anti-personnel weapon. Um, so we usually carried those in the outboard. I never heard of that. Yeah. So you would ju- it was kind of like um, like grape shot. Yes, I'll be little. All they were little uh, darts, thousands of darts yeah. in the warhead, 
And if you ever had people in the open, it was devastating. Nasty. What about on the front? Is that is that a gun turret? Yeah, as well? that's a turret. Again, I had a seven point six two millimeter Gatling gun and a forty millimeter grenade launcher. Yeah, it's some real serious firepower. A Gatling yes. gun is pretty wicked. Oh, it was. You know, that fired about four thousand rounds a minute. Had capable of firing that. It was just a bomb. Yeah. Huh. This is one in one. Cobra had a twenty millimeter Gatling gun, oh, which my. was a serious, very serious weapon. The Apaches now have a 20 or a 30 millimeter Gatling gun in the turret, so they can turn the turret and fire that. We had to fly, we had to fly the helicopter, back seat fired that, and you had to point it just like you did the rockets. But that was an awesome weapon too. So when you were firing these weapons, what impact did it have on, could you feel them going? Oh, absolutely. That you could. Yeah. That, that you had to slowly put in pedal because it would, it would turn the helicopter as you fired it. So you'd have to put in right pedal to compensate for that gun, that fire. It would actually create, like, to, to well, heal it would off. It. Yeah. it was a powerful gun. And it was... did, your, did your chopper have a name? Oh, that, yeah. Pinky? Yeah. <laughs> that's Pinky's Dilemma. Pinky's Dilemma. We came, you know, we'd come up with saying, why can't we name our helicopter? Why can't we put our names on the side of it? Why can't I say Commander Timeless or Warren or CW2 Timeless? Did, did you keep the same helicopter, though? Was that, no. Okay, so you would we cycle tried, out of them? We tried to do that, and maintenance-wise and everything, it never worked. So yeah. you just grabbed whatever one you were assigned. Was there a significant difference between choppers and their handling capabilities? Uh, not much. Uh, most of them flew pretty similar. And they were air-conditioned, too. Because oh. it's all enclosed. I didn't know that. Class. Really? So they were air-conditioned. It was very pleasant. Happy. Here's an Air Force pack. That's an OV-10 Bronco that the Air Force Forward Air Controllers flew. They were always in the air. Uh, we always had their frequencies. So if we had something we wanted their jets to shoot at, we'd call them. And they were very responsive. And this brings up the body count. If you told the fact you had something, the scout had something, you'd mark it, the jets would come in and shoot, and the scout would go back in to give them a BDA, battle damage assessment. <laughs> well, you didn't want to call two F4s out of Benoit come and shoot for you and tell them you know, nothing. You right. got nothing. Couldn't let it happen. You always tried to give them something. Sometimes they got, they, sometimes they just blew a lot of people away. Yeah. Sometimes there was nothing. So you, you'd give them a body count. You, you'd tell them, you know, you guys can, thanks guys, you know, you got uh, uh, three KIAs, possibly 10, you know, there's a, the scout has blood trails, you know, so we'll give you 10. And they go back and they call in, they got 10 KIAs, and we call that the brigade. That's in our unit. Take that procedure, multiply it by every, every ground unit, every air unit in Vietnam. You got tremendous figures that were probably just fantasy. Yeah. The body counts a lot were fantasy. We, Scouts a lot of times would see blood trails and call it a KIA, which it probably was. But uh, that's how the that's how the body counts went. Extremely exaggerated, many times. Well, that was a uh, pretty lengthy series of really amazing clips that you know speaks to the capabilities of the Cobra, how deadly it was, how versatile it was, 
And then, and then a clip that just ended, it has to do with the, um, the very controversial body count. Um, so the, the, the idea behind the body count from what I've read, uh, when general Westmoreland took control of the theater, I think in 65, his idea was we are going to do seek and destroy missions. We're going to engage with the North Vietnamese army and the Viet Cong wherever we can. And we're going to use World War II type firepower to obliterate them. We're going to basically kill them all. <laughs> it, it, it was like a, a war of attrition with a guerrilla army. And uh, I don't know, it doesn't sound like a good idea to me, but I'm not a general. And apparently back then they thought it was a good idea. And so unable to convey to the White House and then ultimately the, the media that we were quote unquote winning the war. How do you, how do you say you're winning the war and there's no front line? That, that's how do you exactly, know what the, that's yeah. exactly right so they they would use the body count and what he just explained jim was just how horribly inaccurate that the, the the body count was and quite frankly it wasn't it's seen now with the benefit of hindsight some people would say even at the time not a particularly good strategy um and the other thing ryan the other part of this last piece that i really like is um is when they would when the jets would come in and drop their ordnance, they would tell the pilots what had happened, what they had done. Remember when we did the Ken Thomas P-47 interview with Oscar? Yep. And remember how we talked about the ground controllers? Yeah. It was important for them to tell the pilots, good job, you really you really laid it on them. It, it, it was kind of one of those things as well. Yeah, I mean, I would think, um, you know, as a pilot, uh, that would be, I mean, it, it, for one thing, it's two people that know the result of what was just happened. If the scout on the ground says, "Hey, congratulations, you took out that that ammo dump. Good job. Yeah. That was your that was what you were here for." If the pilot heard him say it too, but then the scout got killed five minutes later, then at least someone knew the result of, of that mission, you know. And it would also be psychologically positive, I would think, for the pilot to know that he's sticking his neck out to do this thing, and it was a worthwhile event. A absolutely. And, and Oscar mentioned how important that was when he was supporting ground troops um, in Afghanistan. Yeah. So uh, at any rate, really, really kind of interesting clip. Uh, for those who do any sort of reading about Vietnam, you'll, you can read a lot about the body count. It was horribly unpopular, not very effective, and, you know, well, quite susceptible frankly— susceptible to inflation, too. I mean, they, it— you know, unfortunately, um, it could become a political football too. And you know, a a uh, a White House or someone that wants to be able to, you know, show progress in the war. I mean, it, that could happen. I'm not. I don't know that it happened. I mean, but it could happen. Yeah, totally. Yeah. So on the next clip, we're going to unpack a bit more um, Thor's hammer. Here's the next thing we have available to us: is the B-52. Uh, I was probably a bit wrong when I took this picture. It was a good lead-up to my next one, though, which is a B-52 strike. My sight, goodness. That's, what they would do is at 30,000 feet fly, or 20,000, three B-52s in formation would fly together, they'd all drop together, and that's as a result of maybe, uh, oh gosh, I don't know, I don't know the dimensions anymore, probably a mile and a half long and half mile wide, that just saturated, you know, that 
rectangular area. And that's the way they drew it on our maps. We knew when we went out that a B-52 strike was going in at these coordinates. Here's, we drew a little square on our map. And we'd go out and watch it go in. That's what we're doing here is wait until it went in. As soon as it went in, we put the scout down and he would start working the perimeter. And as the scout, or as the smoke cleared, he'd work closer and closer into it and see what damage was done. Give him a BDA. And again, that's another one. When a B-52 strike went in, you like to give them stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, you're talking a lot of money, a lot of expenditure. This is another, it was, it's probably a different one. It's like a cauldron. I mean, it's this. Oh, they, we, didn't, we didn't, scouts would have people walking out of this with blood coming out of their ears, nose staggering, a lot of bodies. Hmm. And believe it or not, I don't know what percentage, but a large percentage of the time that we put our scout on this, on a B-52 strike, he would take fire. No kidding. Because they would set up in the perimeter of these B-52 strikes knowing that we were coming. It's like they had their, it's like they had the rectangular mark on their maps. We took fire many, many times, BDA and a B-52 strike, believe it or not. <laughs> that was one of the more hazardous times. The scouts knew that, to BDA and a B-52 strike, believe it or not, because we took fire so often. Yeah, yeah from, out of the edges. from someone who didn't serve in the military, that seems counterintuitive. Yes. You would have thought you would have wiped everything out, but yeah. you know, the enemy, they're smart, they could adapt to. They're smart, they knew we were coming. Yeah. And you wouldn't believe the impact of these B-52 strikes. I watched one go in, we had a road, rectangles on the other side of the road, so the scout and I are just doing the lazy eights, just on this side of the road, at 1,500 feet, waiting for the strike to go in. And we watched the strike go in. I'm, I'm looking out my window like this, watching these bombs go in, and it's shaking our helicopter. It's I was going to ask you that. You, you feel the concussions from that. Absolutely. We mm. felt those go in. And, uh, when we went into Cambodia, B-52 strikes were going in the night before. And we were 40 miles away, and we could feel it. We could feel the ground. And, and of course, you could hear it. Oh my God. It's just massive, what they put in. That, that, <laughs> the B-52 is a weapon that uh, is, uh, it's, it's an, it is truly an awesome weapon. Um, you know, uh, I, I've got a few things I put together on the B-52 here. Um, you know, everyone's heard of the B-52, but just to kind of give you an idea, you know, of the hierarchy of of the bombers in in our in our military. You know, we started off in World War II was really the the introduction of the 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 heavy bomber into our military doctrine and stuff. So, you know, we had the B-17 and we had the B-24s during World War II. These were both four-engine heavy bombers. You've heard Tony and I go head-to-head on the B-24, B-17 question, (laughs) you know, talking about that and everything. So the B-17 was used just in World War II. After World War II, we had the, well, obviously we had the, B, the B-29 that came about near the end of the war, deployed in primarily the Pacific Theater, and it was what, of course, the atomic bombs were dropped from B-29 uh, super fortresses. They were four-engine propeller bombers also, uh, but could fly higher, could fly faster. They were had a pressurized cabin. They were a much more formidable bomber. It really represented a pretty big technological leap in, in, the, in the way that we did, we built bombers back during World War II. Well, World War II ends in 1945, and just 10 years later, we've got a new bomber uh, that's being used in, in the military, and it's the B-52 Stratofortress. Um, so it, 
think about this, and I'm just going to do a little bit of fun, a little fun comparison between the B-17 <laughs> that everyone knows and loves from World War II and the B-52. And you're going to marvel at the difference in the numbers here. And you should. But think about this. This was only 10 years later. The capability of this plane was not just one level above the B-17. It was really an exponential leap in what what was possible just 10 years later. So first of all, the crew of the B-17 was 10. Had 10 guys on the B-17. On a B-52, it's five. Think about that. This plane is not smaller than a B-17. It is huge compared to a B-17, and you only need five guys to man it. Uh, The B-17, 12,731 units produced during World War II. Uh, The B-52, 744 have been produced. Now, that's the B-52H variant. There have been others that came along before that, okay? Um, But the H is the variant that is currently in use today. Yes, that's correct. It came out in 1955, and it's still in use today. So some of the dimensions, obviously, the length of the plane, B-17, 74 feet long. The uh, B-52 is 161 feet long. The, <laughs> the width, twice that. The, yes, the width, the, the wingspan, 103 feet on the B-17, 185 feet on the B-52. The height, 19 feet versus 40 feet. Um, the weight, okay, listen to this. The empty weight of the B-17, 36,000 pounds. Empty weight of B-52, 172,000 pounds. My God, no wonder why Four times, engines. four times the weight. Okay, the maximum takeoff weight, B-17, 72,000 pounds. For the B-52, 487,000 pounds. My Think this, this is a 10-year difference in our technology. Okay. Um, now, granted, the B-17 was designed in the 30s. So this is 1930s technology versus 1950s technology. So there is that. The B-17, four right cyclone uh, R-1820 radial piston engines developing 1,200 horsepower each with a three-bladed three bladed prop. The B-52, eight Pratt & Whitney turbofan engines developing 17,000 pounds of standard thrust per jet engine, okay? <laughs> per engine. So yeah. the speed of the B-17, 287. The speed of the B-52, 595 miles an hour. Oh. Okay? Yes, I know. And uh, the range, 2,000 miles for a B-17, 10,000 miles for the B-52. Now, mm. that's just on a tank of gas, Nowadays, we've got the aerial tanker refueling. So really, the only limit to the range of the B-52 is the crew, is the stamina of the crew and what they can tolerate. The B-17 can fly. If we could change out the crew's midair, you could keep one in the air indefinitely. Well, until you need to bring it down for maintenance. But, you know, the ceiling, 35,500 on a B-17, 55,000 feet on the B-52. Uh, the rate of climb, 540 feet per minute on a B-17, 6,270 feet per minute on a B-52. Now, that that's incredible. <laughs> I mean, because that's such a huge aircraft. I mean, that, that's... Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, of course, the armament on the B-17 was all primarily 50 caliber guns. Uh, you know, it was bristling with guns. Um, and, you know, it could carry a, a maximum internal bomb load of about... 
17,600 pounds. The B-52, um, oh my gosh, I mean, 20 uh, cruise missiles, 20, uh, those were AGM 86B ALCM cruise missiles, uh, 20 additional, 20 other cruise missiles, two more uh, larger cruise missiles. They had free-fall nuclear bombs that they could drop from it. They had anti-ship missiles, air-to-surface missiles, joint direct-attack munitions, JDAMs. Mm. Um, 51,000 pounds of ordnance could be carried. So um, that, I mean, it's, it's a kind of a, a funny thing to compare this. But, but really what a, a lot of, what this really harkens back to is just the difference in the, the leaps in technology that we had in that period from 1945, you know, up through 1955, you know, um, granted if, if I could do one and I don't have it pulled up, if we could do a comparison of the B 29 versus this, it'd be interesting to see how much closer it is, but I guarantee you it's not going to be much closer. No. And, and what's interesting <clears throat> is I think the B 52 represents the, the height, the pinnacle of, of like, bomb load capacity saturation bombing nowadays the the whole game is to pinpoint drop a bomb on yeah. one weapons depot on on a tank yeah. on a series of tank now it's it's about precision and that started with the norden bomb site in world war ii there's a great book written about it called the bomber mafia by malcolm gladwell and i didn't know this they the 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 number one defense expenditure in the United States, uh, according to the book, was the Manhattan Project, and number two was the Norden bomb site. Really? Yeah, it was an it was ridiculously expensive because of how precise it was, and the idea was, you know, let's like you you would have heard in some of the old World War II propaganda, let's drop a five hundred pound bomb in a pickle barrel. Well, we were never able to do that in World War II. Or Vietnam, we can do it now. So what's interesting is what you're describing, Ryan, is this amazing advance that occurred in our ability to just make big bombers fly high and drop incredible amounts of ordnance. You know what? Even though we have a lot of precision bombing technology now, the B-52 is still in service for a reason. Yes, that that's a great point. <clears throat> um, you know, I read that that all of the B-52s that are currently in service are the H variants, which is which are the stats that I just read for you. Um, uh, so, and some of them have been brought out of mothballs. You know, at, at um, um, Monthan Davis uh, Air Base out in uh, I think it's Arizona or something like that, where they it's where the Ghost Yard is, where they put all the mothballed aircraft. They've actually brought some of them back out of mothballs. There's two of them that have been brought back into service. One as recently as like 2021, I believe. So, I mean. The good thing is, you know, these planes, I, I mean, what was the stat you, you said to me earlier, Tony, before we even got on the podcast, talking about how we're going to be using these planes until what, 2050? Yeah, 2050. A hundred years. I know. It's amazing. After, I mean, and these planes um, sound like they could, some of them could be that old. You know, the fact that it could still be, you know, you, you'd have to wonder at a certain point, at what point does the airframe fatigue become an issue? you know, for these planes. But, um, I mean, my goodness, I don't know. It's crazy. You don't, you don't hear about B-52s having problems or falling out of the sky or anything like that. They seem to be really durable. And and what you said is correct. Most pilots that are flying a B-52 right now, the plane is is older than them. Uh, and in some cases, uh, older than their parents. I mean, yes. The, you know, it's interesting. You, yeah. you, go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, that's it. Go for it. Well, I was just going to say, it's interesting you say that. 
because there's actually a, a there's a documented three generation of pilots that flew in the B-52s, a grandfather, a father, and a son now that have flown their military careers as B-52 pilots. What an amazing weapon system. And, and the other thing that uh, Jim speaks to, this, this, this kill box that he's speaking to, the dimensions are about a mile to a mile and a half long uh, by a half mile wide. And in that kill box, that's just a kill box from three, B-50, three B-52 bombers. Three. That's what a cell was. And those three could drop 90 tons of bombs in that 320-acre area. So an acre is about the size of a football field. So think of— That's a half think, a square mile. Uh, I mean, yes, a half a square mile area, 90 tons. And that's why his description of, of people stumbling out of the kill box with bloody noses and completely dazed is, is entirely true. Because if you were on the edge of that, and if the blast didn't kill you outright— uh, it would it would shock you, or people died of internal bleeding. It would it just just a ferocious weapon, you know. Well, I mean, it's as much psychological as it is, you know, you know, uh, uh, tactical, you know. I mean, which I guess psychology is part of the tactical, you know, equation. But you know, I kind of liken the B fifty two to that car you've paid off. You know, um, the car, you know, you got to, if you got a car that's paid off and it's in fine mechanical condition and it drives you to work every day. Uh, now our military isn't necessarily concerned, I think with saving money, (laughs) but this thing is going to pay dividends for so long. You know, this, this bomber, I mean, I don't think it's going to be matched. I don't know. I mean, it's amazing to me, the utility and the, it's, it's like, it's like the best we can do, you know, yeah. in terms of like, it's the pinnacle of what you can do with the, the, the multi-engine bomber sort of thing. It looks like, you know, yeah, the, the tax, the taxpayers were not ripped off on that project. Uh, no. unlike many other ones that we were ripped off on, um, <laughs> which is incredible. You sound bitter, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, the next series of clips that we're going to roll through Ryan are, they don't really have any particular theme other than there are things that happened while he was in the service, while he was, you know, um, uh, part of the first uh, air, air cab. So go ahead and and let's kick these off and share them with our audience. And is this clip 28? Uh, yes, it is. is. Right? Okay. Our maintenance guys were amazing because we flew our helicopters, Cobras, from sunrise to sunset. We There were some days that I never shut the helicopter down. We'd rearm and refuel while we were running. And uh, I'd never get out. We'd get, you'd get out and take a leak on the side. We'd get it back in, but you'd never shut it down. And we ran for 12 hours. Hmm. And when we got back in, they'd pull maintenance all night on those helicopters. Uh, hmm. It was amazing. With the hours we flew, uh, our unit commander that we had when we went into Cambodia, we flew the troop, flew more hours in those two months than any other unit that ever flown in Vietnam. Hmm. Probably one of the more traumatic things that happened to me, even regardless of me getting shot down, was when I was flying over a scout when I was an aircraft commander. And he took fire, uh, nosed over, crashed, blew up, and killed all three of them. And that just, I was stunned. Uh, Just nothing you can do. And I went back to refuel, and I thought, "Don't don't we need to stop here or something to do? You know, three guys have just been killed underneath me I said don't we I just thought everything should stop and take a break 
have a process what happened. Have a memorial <laughs> service. How many times have you seen somebody die in front of you? Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I just couldn't believe it. I, I was stunned, and I just gassed up and went back out and flew another mission, and nobody said a thing. We never had a memorial service that I remember in, the, cool. in the unit. So you we celebrated should. more when you were going home than oh, yeah. your death. Yeah. 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 yeah exactly. Which is yeah. kind of ironic or dumb. You know, that was Carlson. My call sign was uh, Apache 25. When he left, when a new guy made aircraft commander in the Cobra, he had to take a call sign. He had to pick a call sign. And I flew a guy named Paul Foti uh, in my front seat quite a bit. And uh, it was kind of an honor to take somebody's call sign. You know, <laughs> I took a call sign of somebody that I enjoyed flying with and I liked the way he did things, and I took his, I took 25. So Paul Forty came to me and he said, hey, can I, can I have your call sign when you leave, when I make aircraft commander? And I said, sure. But I put this on my door and said, here's the real one. <laughs> you can take it after I leave. <laughs> but also after I left, Paul Forty was killed. Oh, and in a Cobra, believe it or not, which again, didn't happen real often. Yeah, so just a brief overview. <clears throat> First off, the call sign is, is, is a, a very interesting tradition I had not heard of. Apache 25 was the call sign of a pilot that he had trained with. And then when that pilot left the theater, that call sign was available and you could ask for it. If it was someone that you respected, you'd say, Hey, you know, can I have your call sign? And if they respected you back, they'd say, yeah, you can. So that, that sector or section in there where everyone's laughing, it's because there's a picture of a door and it's when he was leaving the theater and he had Someone had asked him for his call sign out of respect, Apache 25. And what he spray painted on the door is the real Apache 25, meaning, you know, hey, this is the real deal and I'm leaving. And now this other guy's taking over. <clears throat> and then sadly, he follows up the story by saying that that individual died. Oh, man. You wow. <clears throat> so not only, and, and then the clip prior to that was him talking about seeing the scout beneath him yeah um blow up while he's while he's providing cover in a cobra mm. and it it just seemed to him that <clears throat> something should have been done and it wasn't and i i you you heard his daughter barb you know i i don't know how you process that i don't i don't know what you do when you see that you know i guess um you know, I was thinking about that too. I mean, I've listened to that clip a lot and, um, you know, it's, uh, you know, the, the military, you know, the, his superiors, they see it happen all day long, every day for years on end. And, uh, when you're the new guy in there and that happens on the mission that, you, that you're on, you're right. I would think the same thing uh, is, shouldn't we pause for a moment of silence or something? I mean, shouldn't we do something? But evidently not it was you know you know keep pushing keep pushing keep pushing you know and that'd be have that that'd be hard to 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 take you know to to do because in a sense you think to yourself well what happens when i get killed no one's going to acknowledge yeah. it and just move on that's going to be a little that's a little cold yeah you kind of want to think that you're a little bit important you know yeah. i mean you want to think that people will they'll pause and, and, and you know what, their buddies are doing that at night in their bunks, you know, and, and doing shots, you know, you know, at the bar, at, at the, you know, the, 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 the officer's club or whatever. Um, 
it's just sad that that it it has to be you know work carries on and there's no uh there's no pause like that but you know yeah i was when he said that it, i was just i was just kind of blown away i i was like wow that's not Something that, again, there's not a parallel for that um, in civilian life very often. And when it is, it's it's super tragic and people, you know, suffer uh, mentally from that. Yeah. And we'll get into the PTS thing later in, in the interview. Um, but this next clip or series of clips we're going to play, the next clip or the series of clips we're going to play have more to do now with uh, another event. <laughs> he hasn't made it out of the war yet. He's crashed twice. He's in a Cobra, which is supposed to be safer, except when it's not. Uh, I had an engine failure. So this was probably the end of October. And again, I'm going home in February. So it's, I'm through most of my tour, mm. and I had an engine failure. We were flying quite a ways out of Song Bay, just on a visitor reconnaissance mission. And uh, this is all swamp, entirely swampy area. This is on one side. On the other side are rolling hills, which is where the scout was doing his mission. Uh, just little mounds, kind of rolling hills. Uh, I'm making a left-hand turn, so the mounds are over to the right. The swamp is to the left. And I had a compressor failure. It's just a, it's just a bang. And it quit. And we were 1,500 feet. And of course, it started going in. And, you know, from the time it quits till you get on the ground is probably 15 seconds, 15, 20 seconds. You know, it didn't take long. And, you know, in and out of rotation. Yeah, like a rock. So as soon as it quit, I was intent on two things. Number one, picking out the landing area. And if you see right here, that white. That's a rotor blade sticking up from the water. It sank. Is this him going back to take the picture the next day? Yeah, this is the next day I went out to see where we are. So as soon as it quit, I'm intent on two things. Number one, we had what we call the low side governor failure. And I was looking for that because the RPM would go to a certain point and stop. You could go to emergency governor, pull pitch and fly out. So I'm looking at that again stupidly thinking, hoping that that's what it is, and it wasn't. Next thing I'm doing is concentrating on the area I'm going to. I didn't want to go into the rolling hills. I thought, well, this is a level swamp. It's just water. Uh, we'll just land and we'll sit on the ground and we'll be fine. Uh, so I selected, I picked that. And I didn't say a thing. Again, I was so intent. I'm working and landing in this area. It was an open area. Uh, I didn't say anything. The front seater says, are we going in? And I said, you know, I told him, I said, wait a minute. Because <laughs> I'm still watching the rotor, I'm still watching the engine RPM, hoping it'll stop. I just said, wait a minute. And he got on the radio and called the scout, because the scout was still doing his mission. He didn't know it yet. He says, we're going in. And the scout says, what? You're, you're going to fire rockets? He says, no, we're going down. We've got an engine fit. Mm -hmm. So the scout immediately pops up, turns around, gets us in sight and follows us in. Mm. Uh, this is a little bitter. This is a better picture. And again, this is after I went to the, the instructor pilot, in-country instructor pilot course. So I had been doing auto rotations. Uh, we do 10, 20 a day into a sandy area. So you, had, you could have no ground run. 
So you'd have to zero it out. And again, when you do an auto rotation, you come down, lower the pitch. The rotor RPM is maintained due to the uh, relative wind through the rotor system. You maintain normal green RPM. Mm -hmm. As you get down near the bottom, you go into a flare, 20, 25 feet. That helps build rotor RPM when you do that due to the relative wind. And then as it starts to come down, you level out, wait till it comes down, pull pitch, which puts pitch in the blades to slow your descent. And then as you settle, you pull more pitch. You finish with the collective pitch all the way in your armpit, hmm. and you've got full pitch in the blades, and you have a soft touch step. And we did countless of those into a sandy, soft area, so you could have no forward ground run. If you had no forward ground run, you took over. Uh, so I was proficient. It couldn't, I couldn't have had an engine failure at a better time. <laughs> right. I'd been doing so many. Right. And uh, I guess the reason why I, did so, I didn't cause any damage to the helicopter, believe it or not, uh, except water damage. Uh, so you were able to... I zeroed it out, came straight down. As we settled in the water, I pulled pitch, and we just very gradually stopped. Uh, of course, it started to roll. It won't stay upright. I thought we might be sitting on the ground, and we weren't. Uh, it rolled to the left side, and I thought, of course, I had bled off all the rotor RPM. By that time, the rotor was pretty slow. One blade came down and skipped, and then the next blade came down and stopped. And it wasn't a jerky stop at all because the blades were slow enough. You know, I'd done it correctly. Uh, and on a Cobra, the front seat opens, the canopy opens that way, the back seat opens to the right. And I rolled it. I wasn't trying to go either way. I was just trying to hold it upright. It rolled left side. My front seater accuses me all the time. <laughs> you rolled it to my side, so I couldn't get out. So I got out and I opened my door. We had breakout knives. There was a breakout knife up on the console, a big heavy metal knife uh, that you break the plexiglass with in an emergency. So I got out, and by that time he's taking his and breaking the plexiglass, and I'm chopping it. And we're, we get out and. Uh, we're standing on the side of the helicopter. And I thought, again, we were laying on the ground. Well, in this area, it was a bad enough area where we had a Huey above us this time. We were flying a purple team. And we had a Huey flying above us for the whole mission. He would have been out there the whole two hours. And he just is up at 3,000 feet, just twiddling his thumbs for this, you know, or getting shot down, or getting a scout shot down. That's all he was there for with a load of blues on board. So he started coming into the where we were laying and maneuvering in to keep from hitting any of those trees and to pick us up. And started blowing water in the cockpit. And as it blew water in the cockpit, we're standing on the side, we pulled everything out. We took our, we did take our chest protectors off. Still had survival vests on. Uh, but it just very slowly sank out of sight and we're sitting there swimming. And he's not too far away with a tremendous rotor wash blowing in our face. And we swam over and grabbed the tree. And by the time I swam over and grabbed the tree, I'm exhausted. I mean, it was, because you got your boots on, you got your uniform on. I mean, if it had been any distance, again, I don't think we would have made it. But, uh, so then he's hovering in close to us. The, the, the blues throw a rope out to us. You know, he doesn't want to get too low. So they throw a rope out and the blues are looking down at us going, like this, you know, climb up the rope. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I can barely hold on to this tree. I'm barely holding on to the tree, and I'm, so, I'm just shaking my head, you know, saying that's not going to work. And finally, the guy, again, it was Fred, a huge pilot, worked it in enough where we could get out of skin, get into the helicopter. And uh, that's what that picture is. It's Charlie Cochran and I 
our flight suits were still soaking wet, and we'd just gotten back to the fire base after being picked up. And uh, I mean, first off, an awesome piece of flying. Uh, secondly, how tragic would it have been to have to have survived a landing like that and then have drowned? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? That would have that would have been, uh, and it happens. All of a sudden, it could have been a real occurrence. Yes. And that was the one where you have. Yeah, I mean, oh, sorry. Yeah, it must have cut off. You know, the, you know the scene that I think of is is for anyone who's watched Star Wars, uh, and the Empire Strikes Back when Luke Skywalker goes to visit Yoda, thinking the Dagobah system. Yep. And he lands his sky his X wing fighter in the swamp, <laughs> and he just kind of watches as it slowly sinks beneath the surface of the swamp, and that's kind of what he thought. What he was saying earlier on is he knew it was wet, but he was thinking it's just like marshy wet, right? Like. Like you could walk through it with your muck boots on. Right. What they didn't realize is the things that he saw coming out of the water weren't bushes, they were trees. And that the water in some places was 40 feet deep. My goodness, yeah, that's crazy. So when he landed, he was thinking, yeah, I'll go through a few feet of water and then the skids will, you know, hit hit ground and we'll be fine. And it just kept sinking and sinking and sinking until pretty soon they had to swim out of it, grab a tree and uh, and and get get pulled out a different way because there's no way they're going to climb a rope doing that. Mm, wow. So this is his uh, third crash. He said this is October. So now he's, you know, he's been in the, the theater, what, nine months or something like that. And uh, this wasn't any enemy activity. This is another way that you can die in a war through um, a mechanical failure. And it's, I, I'm just, I'm just glad Jim's still with us today. It's really, a, I mean, honestly, uh, and I don't know what's coming ahead because I haven't listened. This is the first time I'm listening to this interview as we go through this. I, I don't know what's coming, but I mean, just to be in it this long. I mean, obviously, first few weeks he was shot down three times or however many it was. And then he went yeah. on and now he's got had an engine failure. My goodness. I mean, um, uh, it is amazing that he got back in one piece, honestly. It is. It, it really is. Um, so now we're going to play like uh, two or three clips in a row. These are just little stories, little snapshots of some of the things that uh, that he experienced uh, from various missions or in between missions. So was, was this the first time that you, since you were deployed, you had a chance to get? Yeah, I, yeah, that was the only time I got out of the trip. Yes, yeah. to go to the IP course. I went to Bung Town. Mm. That's the only time I got anywhere. I never got this. We never got out of the trip. Mm. Scouts did sometimes. Because he couldn't take a Cobra to go screw around. Scouts could take a scout and fly to the Saigon for a national transmission or something, or fly to Pung Tao for whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Cobras, he couldn't do that. Right. <laughs> It'd be a gunship fly over Saigon. <laughs> what the? One of the scouts shot a deer, and the scout landed and loaded the deer. These are two X hunters here that dressed us. Two guys from Michigan. The CEO. The CEO of a box ship when he knew, when he found out the scout landed in, out in the AO and he was over to pick up a deer. <laughs> we did some dumb things. What what I think about when when he talks about these guys taking the scouts and like going on joy rides, it sounds like you imagine pulling into town and you know, like uh you know, picking up you know, a case of beer, you know, making a beer run in these things. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, that's crazy. 
And that's what he was saying with the scouts, which again, there's a civilian version, the MD 500. I mean, it doesn't look imposing. It's a little bubble helicopter. It looks like a news helicopter. And he was saying that those scouts, they could fly wherever they want. They go to R and R, they could land, they could go to Saigon. You know, you can't do that in a gunship. You can't just fly a heavily armed, uh, Cobra over vacation hotspots in, in the supposed <laughs> peaceful areas back there and scare the shit out of all the civilians. So, so he said that, you know, they couldn't get away with those sort of things like the scout guys could. And then the deer, the picture of the deer. And that's why you hear me saying, oh my, it was this huge deer and it, they had it hung up and they were gutting it. And basically what they had done, the scouts had seen this deer. So they, they hovered shot it with their rifle, landed, loaded it in a scout and brought it back. And that's what they had for dinner that night. And um, <laughs> apparently the CEO wasn't too happy with that. They didn't think that was uh, a good use of uh, uh, a highly trained personnel and use in, in taxpayer resources. It reminds me of Bill Parker's story of going and shooting the cow, <laughs> you know, so that they can have something to eat besides mutton. You know, know, and how the, the commanding officers were like, you know, well, I want to eat what they're eating. How come we got to eat mutton, you know? It's always yeah. the commanding officers that got to ruin everything. Exactly. <laughs> they just <laughs> want a good meal. In the room. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, go ahead and uh, uh, play this uh, next clip. I think, I think the audience would find this one pretty remarkable. Yeah, it was 10 o'clock at night. Uh, Ops guard comes in, Mr. Thomas. He says, we got a mission. That, that there's a loop team out, and the long-range patrol had probably six guys uh, that would go out and sit and just monitor. Uh, you know, they never wanted to get in contact because they, they just were to monitor. Well, it turns out they had blown a claymore. They, when they, in a night position, they would put claymore mines, little claymores out in front of them. They heard movement and they blew a claymore and they blew it on a tiger. And the tiger is out in the woods thrashing around. They blew the, 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 the tiger. A tiger. Bingo tiger. Bingo tiger. And it didn't kill him, you know, it just pissed him off really bad. And so they're on the radio calling. tigers in the story now. <laughs> so they're on the radio calling back to their, their camo guys, screaming and yelling. You gotta pull us out of here. You gotta pull us out of here. So the tiger was trying to come into their perimeter. <laughs> so that sounds like a threat to me. It sounds like something that would have been used to be Exactly. I mean, that alone is like, what are we doing out here? How does a tiger survive a Claymore mine going off? I don't know, but it was sure angry. <laughs> and my thought would be, if that thing survived that and it's angry, I'm getting the hell out of here. <laughs> oh, yeah. I could wow. Just, I could just imagine how the situation slowly dawned on these highly trained infantrymen about what happened. And he called them uh, the LERPs, long-range patrols, and these were highly trained uh, uh, men. I think they were uh, served in the Army. Maybe it was the Marine Corps. I can't remember which branch, but their their job was to go in in behind enemy lines and disappear and never be detected and gain intel on what was going on. These long-range patrol guys could get so close to the Vietnamese that they could smell the food they ate that night. Just it like was, just yeah. like the guy that book that you read about the guy who was in uh, the Philippines, I think that saw yes. the Japanese force going through. Yep, and and it was it's it's the same sort of thing. These guys are just incognito, blending in with the environment. Yep, 
and, wow. and that, that that's that's what happened is touching off the claymore and the tiger and all that blew their cover and they were like just come and get us this mission's done well, <laughs> we're going to start over again speaking of freaky wildlife you know uh, the other <laughs> one of the other things that they had over there were apes that were actually uh they you know they they actually called them rock apes but they they would throw rocks at you if these guys would be on patrol they, some of the guys i've some of the vietnam veterans i interviewed on my uncle denny's uh documentary talk about this how they'd be on patrol and all of a sudden they'd start getting rocks thrown at them and like what in the world and they'd you know start shooting and stuff like that and the rocks would still get thrown at them and it turns out they were apes throwing oh. rocks at them okay but at least they weren't throwing it, poop well they weren't yeah for, <laughs> you know and so another interesting story this is a little bit more on the paranormal side of things i guess uh one of the guys they were they were in this one area one night and they were camped right along a creek okay and uh, this is this is in vietnam of course near the dmz one of the guys was on watch okay the rest of them were sleeping they took turns with watch well one guy Wakes up in the middle of the night, he's firing his rifle and screaming. And he swore that something came up out of the water like a man-ape sort of thing. Came up out of the water and was walking towards him from the water. And he lit into it. They could never find anything. But I actually did research on this. And that's actually, there are many, many stories from Vietnam of people of these guys encountering some sort of a crazy gorilla over there, you know, and it might've been these rock apes for all I know, right. but freaky stuff. Sounds like, a, like a Viet- weird, like a Vietnamese water <laughs> Bigfoot or something. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Awesome. Ho Chi Sasquatch, you know, or something. So <laughs> anyway, so the Yeti, the Vetti. So That's right. <laughs> this concludes episode four. Join us for the final episode next time where Jim discusses his decisions he made to help everyone get home safely and his eventual rotation out and post-war career in the military.